Welcome to another episode of Up To. 10 years ago, Up To started as a live event series showcasing leaders who are as humble as they are successful. The humility piece is extremely important as we identify leaders who can inspire others. We try to focus our interviews on the non-business aspects of their lives and in doing so have found there's a real thirst to explore their hearts and minds in atypical ways. Our host, as always, is Adam Kaufman. And on this episode, we are joined by our guest, Dirk Youngie. We'll be right back. If you're a business owner, an executive, or a rising member of a management team, I don't have to tell you about the importance of having team members and partners you can trust. A firm that I've worked with for years and have trusted myself to refer my colleagues to is Vividfront, an award-winning digital marketing, branding, and website development firm based in Cleveland, Ohio, but with clients all over America. Vividfront's focus is on scaling brands digitally. They create holistic, return-on-investment-centric strategies and solutions for middle market companies who want to grow. They do paid advertising, influencer and social media marketing, e-commerce strategies, lead generation websites. I could go on. Their expertise is expansive, and their tactful leadership team, all of whom I know, has the entrepreneurial experience to turn ideas into revenue-producing business plans. Yes, I am reading a script, but I will tell you that I sought Vividfront out for this podcast because I already believed in them, seeing what they did in the marketplace. So if you're seeking a partner to take your business to the next level, or if you're looking for an opportunity to work for a top agency with an amazing culture, truly an amazing culture, check out their website at vividfront.com or send me a note and I'll introduce you to my friends who run the company there. Vividfront, great organization. You're listening to the Up To Podcast with today's guest, Dirk Youngie. Our guest today is yet another leader who is as humble as he is successful. He reached the pinnacle of his professional field, serving as both chairman of the board and also CEO of one of the largest and most reputable multifamily offices in the world. He's been an innovator and leader in the family office industry for over 30 years. A fourth generation member of the Pitcairn family, he was instrumental in establishing the firm as a multifamily office back in 1987 and led Pitcairn's pioneering transition into a 100% open architecture investment platform. He's a consultant, an author, I know he's working on a new book right now, and a frequent speaker at conferences and seminars on issues related to the financial services industry, family offices, family governance, succession planning, the next generation, etc. He received a Lifetime Achievement Award that's a sign we're getting older when we receive Lifetime Achievement Awards. <laughs> he received a Lifetime Achievement Award at the 2016 Family Wealth Reports Awards for his leadership and dedication to the industry. In 2014, another organization, Family Office Exchange, honored him with the Fox Founders Award, recognizing him as a pioneer in the wealth management industry. In 2012, he received the Industry Leadership Award from Family Office Review, you get what I'm saying here, he's a true leader in his field, in recognition of his significant contributions to family offices and multifamily offices. He's also been named the CEO of the year in that industry. 
And he wrote an article I uncovered back from 2007 in Family Business Magazine that's still referred to today because of its kind of uh, groundbreaking findings. Widely recognized for his involvement in social and community affairs, our guest today always seems to be on the front end of big ideas and popular trends long before they come, become mainstream. Just two examples from my own experiences with our guest. He recognizes significant value female leaders can bring to an organization long before the recent emphasis on placing more women in boardrooms and in CEO suites. Also, on the technology side, our guest today was telling me all about the applications for drones and the commercial use of drones years ago before it was so common. This guy is forward thinking. When he's not flying helicopters or riding his Harley or scuba diving, our guest today sits on a variety of philanthropic and corporate boards, including Paramount Resources, Freeman Company, EM Designs, and L.B. Foster. He's a founding trustee of the National Philanthropic Trust. He's a fellow at the Family Firm Institute, and he's a past member of the James Madison Council of the Library of Congress. Did you know James Madison? No. Okay. Uh, woo. Dirk Youngi, welcome to Up To. Thanks, Adam. Looking forward to this. What, what, a, what a bio there. So what have you been up to? I'm getting excited about writing a book. I've had one in me for the last 10 years, and I finally decided to quit procrastinating. And it's exciting for me to look at some of the chapters and the learnings that I had that I'm trying to give to others. Mm -hmm. And what compelled you to do it now if you've been thinking about it for 10 years? Why now? Is this something that came about during your COVID kind of time to think about things more gradually and slowly? I, I actually do think that the COVID experience gave me an opportunity to step back mm -hmm. and take a look at the things that I wanted to achieve. Right. So what do you think uh, we should begin with in terms of your family? I often ask guests, what type of family were you born into? That sentence that question has a lot different meaning when I ask you what type of family were you born into Dirk a loving productive wonderful family I'm one of 53 grandchildren wow and so I had extended cousins as well as I'm one of seven okay so I had a rich family experience early on and it continues to be the backbone of what's important to me today and what type of family was it in terms of not the size, which that's impressive, all those grandchildren, but what type of business or what did your father do for a living? Well, my dad uh, lost his dad when he was only eight years old back in the Depression. So dad had a tough growing up and came from very modest background, and he married into the Pitcairn family. And he got his training at uh, University of Illinois as a chemical engineer and built a very successful consulting business, consulting on all the major petrochemical and oil refineries in the U.S. and the Caribbean before he was recruited by my grandfather to take over the lead position for our family as the control block of the founder of the Pittsburgh Plate Glass Company. And dad was the one who really re-energized PPG and turned it into a growth company and built a first-class 
diversified portfolio at Pitcairn. So PPG, that's the Pittsburgh Plate Glass Company? Correct. And when was that formed? My great-grandfather, Scottish immigrant, he came on the arm of his 13-year-old brother. He was only five at the time. Uh, came to the New World because there wasn't any food in Scotland. Uh, through that experience, he got a introduction by his brother's best friend, Andrew Carnegie, who got him a job as an office boy in the Pennsylvania Railroad. Andrew Carnegie was your brother, your his brother's best friend. Yes. Right. And that experience, he taught himself when he was 13, telegraphy. And if you think of the rails of the era, that era, it's what the web is today, where the web connects things digitally, rails connected physical goods and services. And he saw the firsthand the growth of the oil and gas industry. And although Texans feel that obviously oil was Texas, mm -hmm founded, we know that Oil City and Pitcairn, Pennsylvania, were the first two producing wells in America. And that relates to my life in Cleveland, where we still try to hold with pride Rockefeller's start in Cleveland, close to that basin in Pennsylvania and Oil City. So maybe you and I are distant cousins. Maybe. Cleveland and Pittsburgh, yes, we kind of lost the oil game to the south, but we started it. Yes, you did. And John Pitcairn, being an early developer as an independent oil and gas operator, that's where he really gained his first significant amount of capital. And if you think of it, Pittsburgh, it being the confluence of three rivers, it throws up silica or sand, which is what you need. Okay. And in the 1870s, there was an extended economic depressed period as a precursor to the 1929 depression mm. where the glass plants in and around Pittsburgh were in poor shape so he took his oil money he was one of the first energy uh, or basically a technology transfer guy he went to Europe technology transfer found that Europeans made much better glass than was made in America so from the Brits and the French he bought the US and North American rights to making glass the improved way, and he launched the Pittsburgh Plate Glass Company in 1883. 1883, and I think you told me before you had a virtual monopoly on glass for a long time. Yeah, well, within 10 years, that went from a concept. PPG produced 70% of all the glass made in America. 70%, and that was four. So when I asked what type of family were you born into four generations earlier, you, had, you controlled 70% of a very large market, glass. Absolutely, and think of it, he was a serial entrepreneur so that for his contractors that needed to glaze the office buildings and the warehouses, they also needed paint. Mm. So he was the Home Depot or the Lowe's of that era for his contractors, mm. one-stop shop, which made it very good for the contractors and that business took off. So Pittsburgh awesome. plate glass and paints. Diverse, diverse set of uh, channels to sell through there. Absolutely. What about, again, the family? So you were born into this family four generations later, and you told me once you thought it was normal that 
General Eisenhower would come over and hang out with the grandparents? Yeah, well, uh, up until I was about 12, I thought everybody's grandparents invited the president. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And so, yeah, I think I had a picture where I photobombed them when I was eight years old at his 80th birthday in my grandparents' living room. And was he general then or president? He was president. Wow. He was retired president at that time. But your grandparents knew him before he was president. Well, actually, my grandfather, who was, uh, I believe he was chairman of the Republican Party for Pennsylvania, was credited with convincing Eisenhower he should go from the military to seek the highest office in the land. Hmm. So your family, the glass, the paint, the risk-taking entrepreneurship. You were born into a family also where risk-taking was common in the business sense. And I know you care a lot about transitioning a family ethos into a future generation. So how, how has entrepreneurship continued to be a part of your family? Well, I guess I've always been a student of family businesses and family enterprises. And what I've learned is that entrepreneurship is one of the only antidotes to shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. So each generation needs to be encouraged to follow their own entrepreneurial activities, whether it's in their philanthropy, whether it's starting a new business. Starting a podcast? I didn't know anything about starting a podcast well, when we did this. Well. Take a chance. Absolutely. Risk reward? I've always liked the uh, Nike motto. Oh, yeah. Just, Go for it. Just do it. Do it. Exactly. Um, you once told me that you were a life insurer's worst nightmare. So what, what do you mean by that? <laughs> well, some people think that I am a big risk taker. I love scuba diving. I've parachuted. I've hang glided all over the world. Uh, I fly almost every type of aircraft that there is. Um, I just like exhilaration and new experiences. What do, you, what do you think that does for you? Like, I, I do none of those things. I don't go in helicopters. It, I don't jump off mountains. Like, what, what am I missing? Or do you think certain people, it's kind of a serious question. Like, does that do something for you that you need to feel alive? Or is it just purely fun? Or have you ever thought about, like, why do you do all those things? Uh, it's just who I, you I, are. I, I, it, it's it's in my DNA. My yeah. my uh, siblings not so much, right? But I've I've never seen it as risk. I've always seen it as a challenge, and I wanted to grab every aspect that I could. And experiences are critical to me. I love that about you. I one time when we were uh, in Chamonix, France, together at a conference, there was twenty of us together. Uh, all similar kind of demographics in terms of age and lot in life and business and families. Out of 20 of us, you were the only one. Well, first I should say uh, the official conference canceled the uh, jumping off of the mountain with the paragliding because it was too windy that day. So that wasn't an option. But you're the only one who said, Adam, we got to go find, we got to go do it ourselves. You pick up your phone, you found a local guide, and you jumped off a mountain at like, I think it was 9,000 feet. Actually, it was 5,000 feet, but I had to demonstrate 
that I could fly the paraglider up to the top of the glacier. Oh, yeah, you went up. So that was at 11,000 feet. Yeah, yeah. And then he said he would basically compliment me if when we landed in the very tight area down at the bottom of the slope, that if I could land it without dragging him and me, he would say that I was an accomplished paraglider pilot. So you wanted to prove it. I Hey, and it you was did. There. I mean, I watched you jump off, and I met you at the bottom. It was unbelievable. But what, what do you think that does for you? It just makes you feel more alive, like trying all these things that your siblings don't do? Definitely. Yeah. And, and I think that you've always embraced getting the most out of any situation that you're in, whether it's a somewhat boring conference or a, um, a, a vacation trip or anything in between. You let go all in on everything. Have you always been like that? Did you discover at an early age you were a little different from like maybe your friends at school in that way? Or I think it had a lot to do with uh, my dad always challenging me and giving me opportunities that uh, seemed older than what I was at the time. So I, I just look back at that. That was a gift from my father. It's mm-hmm. to- a nice gift. But see, when you think about it, you're your siblings have the same father, but they're not that way. So that's just you. This is a character trait of yours. I'm just really impressed with your joie de vivre and how you make the most of every situation. Not everyone's like that, and I love being around you because it, <laughs> it, 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 it makes me feel more alive as well. Uh, we've had some great times together, Adam. We have. But I know you embrace the fact, you don't hide from the fact, speaking of great times, that yes, you were born into a, a privileged situation, but you didn't just rest on the laurels of that, and you um, worked hard outside of the family enterprise for a while, right? Yep. Well, I've always liked the idea to those that have received much, much as expected. It's biblical. And I've tried to live it out. Yeah, you definitely do. What would be an example of of that, living it out, uh, when you worked outside of Pitcairn at first, maybe, or the extracurriculars you do beyond work when you're giving back with helping the Library of Congress digitize? Or what would be an example of? Well, that is true. I was uh, fortunate to have John Kluge, who started the James Madison Council, to digitize the vast collection of the Library of Congress. There wasn't one dollar in the federal budget to digitize that vast collection back in the 90s. And John Kluge got together a hundred people that were leaders to come together to take that rich resource and make it available to the globe. And so uh, I just remember actually being selected by the James Madison Council once we got the digital library up and going and we had developed a curriculum that go along with that for school systems around the globe i was asked to go see at the time uh hillary clinton and and because we needed a place to exhibit the national digital library around the year uh 2000 when so you the were bicentennial. Seeing her, you were seeing her as the first lady that was one of her responsibilities maybe for allowing the Library of Congress to turn the White House into basically an exhibit hall. It's amazing it was that recent that the Library of Congress was digitized. I think like every book published, one copy would go to the Library of Congress. Correct. 
and then the dig that's a lot of scanning that's a lot of digitizing to do well the uh, we, we raised 250 million dollars in the first three years and we were able to digitize like six million of the most important things mm. in that collection that could be maps mm. it could be paintings it could be uh songs lyrics the up to podcast probably well that should be there <laughs> it should be there <laughs> um i also really respect how in spite of the family environment in which you were born into that dirk you share sometimes that you've had challenges in your life you've had some curves in the road you've had to navigate along the way we all do um, a lot of people kind of brush those aside, don't talk about them, don't write about them. But one time I was interviewing you over in Europe at a conference and you, you shared a pretty heavy topic with me. And I know it, it's taken a lot of work over the years for you to get through that. Well, I'm one of seven children, as I mentioned before, and I'm third. But my older brother was a very accomplished architect. And when he was 26, and I was 23, I get a call one night and they, by the police, and uh, he had, it looked like he had committed suicide. Mm. But in terms of talking, there was no CSI back there and everything, and suicide is a very dark topic for the members of the small Christian faith that I'm part of. What's that called? That's called Swedenborgian. Okay. And that is don't, that's not in God's merciful wanting to have. Right. It's a sin to commit suicide. Right. Right. But in later years, it turns out that one of the paramedics that was there said that he believed that uh, his wife had shot him. Hmm. And it was uh, very tough to go through that period. I was the closest to my older brother. Mm. We, uh, our voices sounded the same. Mm. He had a rock band, and I was backup singer for him. Mm. And that was very enjoyable. And, uh, but there's no way that with a 22 rifle that you can position it such that you shoot yourself in the back of the head. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and that was a very bad marriage. So lessons learned, make sure that your life partner is supportive of you. Mm -hmm. What about for you in that time between thinking your brother committed suicide did you think that wasn't possible right away, or was this out of the blue a couple years later that this new discovery became known? Well, it seemed strange at the time because he had it going on. He was the protege of Louis Icahn, an accomplished architect, mm. and Jan was uh, everything he wanted in the next generation of architects on accomplishing significant projects. and. Uh, but his wife, who claimed to be an MD that she wasn't, was in, was in fact medicating both of them. Mm. So it was a dysfunctional marriage. And uh, how do you think this has affected how 
you became a head of your household, or does it continue into the next generation, this loss? Uh, does it affect how you maybe want to act differently around your kids or make sure the kids are interacting? Because you were trying to be a, a really best friend to your brother. Does any of this play out in future generations? Absolutely. And uh, when there's tough times, make sure that the family unit is there to support. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, my brother somewhat isolated himself. So we've always talked about the nuclear Dirk Youngy clan of being there for each other. And actually, some of the lessons that I had learned about how to help family groups mm -hmm. with their business or their philanthropy or their enterprise was that families need to do the work of distilling their core values. Mm -hmm. And so we do that on a regular basis with my family. It's just so impressive, and, and thanks for sharing this sensitive topic, but it's so impressive that you have this joie de vivre that I mentioned at the beginning. You are always smiling. You're always making me laugh. You, <laughs> you, you lift up everyone around you uh, in spite of this major uh, period of challenge in, earlier in your life. It's very impressive, Dirk. Well, thanks. And I have done some work with some professionals because, like I said, I felt I was closest to him mm -hmm. before I got this additional insight on that he may have been murdered rather than he took his life. Mm -hmm. I was blaming myself mm. because I should have seen it. That's a normal human nature feeling to blame yourself, right? Right. Mm. So do, do the work. Yeah. God bless you for the work you did and still do. You're listening to the Up To Podcast. We'll be right back. I'm grateful that Calfee, Halter, and Griswold has agreed to once again partner with us. With offices in Ohio and Washington, D.C., this full-service national law firm focuses on all aspects of business and the law, including corporate and finance, intellectual property, and government relations. Let me be clear. I actually approach companies with whom I would like to partner. We don't just accept marketing dollars from anyone who wants to be a partner. I've been referring my CEO and entrepreneur friends to Calfi for years. I believe in them. One of their notable practice areas is in mergers and acquisitions. Recently, I introduced a successful entrepreneur in the Midwest to Calfi as a European-based conglomerate wanted to buy his business. Calfi works with large corporations as well as privately held companies throughout the U.S., Canada, Europe, and Asia. So whether it's selling your own business or the more routine needs of creating your first will or anything in between, this firm can really do it all in terms of legal needs. Once again, the firm is Calfee, Halter, and Griswold, and you can find them at calfee.com or on the Up2 Foundation website. If you enjoyed today's conversation, you will also enjoy the Kaleidoscope, Adam Kaufman's monthly Up To newsletter. Sign up for the newsletter on the Up To Foundation website and you will receive more meaningful content, observations as we try to showcase humility and authenticity in the marketplace. Go to uptofoundation.org to subscribe. Welcome back. You're listening to the Up To podcast with host Adam Kaufman. And on this episode, we are joined by our guest, Dirk Youngy. You talked about spreading the family story, writing things down a minute ago, and I was looking at, you have seven lessons 
for successful families. I yeah. was just thinking about some types of questions to ask you. Uh, and it doesn't probably have to be just successful families. I thought these were good learnings for all families. And one of them was spread the family story. Spread the family story. Like, what did you mean? I really like that one. What does that mean? Well, <clears throat> before there was television, and if you study American Native Indians, they used the fire as their focal point for their evenings, but they used it so that the stories... Hmm. I didn't know that. I'm going to write that. Stories of nature, stories of their view of spirituality, mm -hmm. was what the elders would bring on an ongoing basis in terms of the stories about that tribe and about its history. Mm -hmm. So um, in that that worked for them mm. for generations, I've always tried to have the stories be the basis for if I'm going to do a family values exercise, it all has to be related to the story. So if that value is something you want to speak to and you want to see evidenced in your family system, what's the story behind it? Mm -hmm. Where did you learn that? Who brought it to It's more you? relatable that way. Why is it important? Mm -hmm. And it makes them come alive. So that reminds me one time, you know, with our three young kids at the time, we we're teaching them the importance of giving back and how they're fortunate and they need to you know, think of others uh, less fortunate than them and blah, 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 like a lot of parents say, but they just weren't getting it. They were, they were just words coming out of the mouth of the parents. And somebody advised me, I can't remember which one of my friends said, you should actually take them to a setting where they can actually see and touch and experience people maybe less fortunate. And we didn't use those words, less yeah. fortunate, but you know what I'm saying. So we actually took them to a uh, church that had this um, urban environment uh, computer room for people who don't have computers at home and how excited they were that they got a second computer, for instance. So that, that learning, that in-person tangible nature of it then they got it that they could put a little bit of money towards helping them get their next laptop or something like that at that school. So that's kind of like what you're talking about. That actually brings up a, a lesson that I tried to bring to my kids. Okay. Was I wanted them to understand uh, money in its three sources, spend, save, and give. Mm -hmm. So actually, I'd get each one of the kids to bring me what they had done through their survey of what was the allowance that a fifth grader was typically receiving. They were asking others. Yes. So if it came back and it was, will I get $15 a week for doing the chores around the house? I would give my kids 45. I'd give them three times as much. So they have to track their spending. I took them down to set up a bank account. Okay. And at the end of the year, I wanted them to identify a family or some service that needed their support and mm. made sure that they mm. had that experience of giving back. And how, how young were they, do you recall, when you started that? Uh, they were as young as fourth and fifth graders. Oh, pretty young. And I have four adult children, and I have to say, it really impressed upon two of them. Yeah. One of them, sort of. And the other one really didn't get it. Mm, okay. <laughs> but well, I tried. He's still your child and you still work on it, yeah. right? That, 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 that game's not over. Um, addition to the spreading of the family story, the other one that really 
resonated with me in terms of the seven lessons for successful families was be true to family values. Be true to family values. And so that made me think about well, what, what would our kids say are our family's values? So I guess that's part of your goal here is to articulate those. Absolutely. And that's why the storytelling and relating where they learn that is then shared with the entire family group so that they can incorporate that into what we're going to hold each other accountable for accountability so can you give an example or two of what would be a family value like be nice to others every family would say that but what how, how specific should these values be well we actually had a session where two of my children were we've always valued competition in our family so so that maybe is a value competition yeah but so everybody saw the good side of competition but two of my children would compete so strongly against each other that they had to be right so the other one was wrong Mm. and it was very uncomfortable yeah that's not healthy that can get unhealthy and through one of the sharings that we did they actually got to come to a new norm understand that when they were basically making the other one wrong so they could be right it was hurtful Mm -hmm. and that all that person had to say was please respect and that would change Hmm. the mood so that came through a value discussion so you as the parent the patriarch you have to verbalize this to your teenage kids or whatever age they were when they were competing like that well but the beauty was they were old enough because they one was in college and one was in high school but they were still they were not the loving sibs Mm. That they wanted to be yeah and they got to take it on for themselves and in front of the family they worked it out i just love that your life's work is around families that's your life's work yep families financially families here we are talking about children families mental health all the things we've talked about so far Am I wrong to think that like the role of family is like underrated in America? Like how many family businesses there are? Go ahead. Well, I did the research. When we sold the Pittsburgh Plate Glass company stock that was great grandpa's original company, and then I saw what my grandfather and my father did for basically repositioning it for growth at various times, that was such an important investment for us as a investment professional i wanted to see why what were the characteristics mm-hmm. and without making it sound too pit yeah, yeah. or pompous i saw that our family is the controlling shareholder over many generations over depressions over world wars over hyperinflation had been the stability that had helped that enterprise move through history and be beneficial to all its constituents its employees its customers Mm -hmm. and its shareholders so i did the research and i found out that over 70 percent of the employment in the u.s Mm. is family enterprise of one form or 70 percent so that even in this age of amazon and google well so i my definition included bill yates okay yeah microsoft yep but that can be well because he was i mean he had majority position in that for a long time absolutely right but it could be the corner dry cleaner 
Right, or like the next generation restaurateur that there's so many of, or gas station owners. Absolutely. And I read that only like 13% of family businesses make it to the third generation. And you mentioned the it, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves. It's even worse that, that things that are successful in G1, less than 1% is there any aspect of the togetherness mm. by the fourth generation. G1 being uh, generation one, you're generation four, now you have grandkids, generation right. six, who are old enough to start hearing some of these family stories. Absolutely. What about the <clears throat> aspect of your future? We've talked a little bit about your impressive background. What are you excited about going forward? You're full of you know what and vinegar, and I know you're not just sitting around uh, smoking cigars all day. What are you most excited about looking into the future? Well, I find that my position right now uh, on public company boards, but other organizations where I'm on the board of, mm -hmm. and I guess you commented on this, but if I'm going to sit on a board, I, I'm not a wallflower. I'm, I'm a, a full participant. You are. And it's very interesting that with my background at, in investments, that I'm finding myself at the headwaters of ESG and you know what ESG is mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. the thrust to have all aspects of companies be more inclusive to understand diversity to do what's right for the environment mm -hmm. make sure your governance process is sound so uh, that's an exciting part because uh, I am a conservative mm -hmm. but I'm finding that my view can welcome and be part of this new mega trend yeah, and the, I want to make sure it's it's done the right way. The left doesn't have to have a monopoly on ESG. No. So I'm glad you're uh, speaking that voice. Are you going to talk about that? I know you have a new book coming out. Is that going to be part of your book By the book's way, focus? we were talking about this a little earlier. Yes. What, what was one of the titles that you thought might be appropriate for my book? Well, I've now named myself the editor of your book. I'm okay. a self-named editor, and so <laughs> I think we're going to maybe be calling it Harley's, Helly's, and Happiness, because that is just so indicative of what I have known you to be for the past 10 years. You're full of happiness. You have the thrills of riding Harleys across Colorado, and you send me the text photos, but <laughs> I know there's a lot of substance behind this. I'm being a little bit flippant, but What's the book about? Well, the, the book really is my life learning about family systems. And whether it's for a public company or whether it's for a family of wealth or really any family that understands that families, why are families so complex? Yeah. Because they are. <laughs> but the things that are important in life, when it's all done, it's usually connected to the family experience. And I've heard you say before that your family's made all the mistakes, so you help yeah. <laughs> uh, helps uh, create the learnings that you can then share and how to do things differently. Well, that was at the cornerstone of when we went from a single family office to a multifamily office, was I had a great investment story to tell of our 20 years and PPG and diversification. But it was really that many of the families that might want to partner with Pitcairn 
were looking for things having to do with their family systems. Mm -hmm. Because, like I said, only 1% of successful G1 are still available in G4. 1%? 1. So it goes from 13, I thought, in yeah. third generation to 1%. One, it's that low. Wow. You better and, get that book done. That's not a good track record. <laughs> no, and, it, and it's not, not because they over-leveraged. It can be. It's not because their product was obsolesced, but it's because they forgot about how the family system needs to evolve mm. over time. Mm. So it's more than just simply saying money ruins people. It's more than that, because money doesn't necessarily have to ruin people. No, well, you know that one of the chapters that I'm working on is wealth as an amplifier, because mm. wealth doesn't know whether it should be used for good or whether it's challenging, mm -hmm. but it's the way the individuals relate to their wealth. Mm. I uh, am jumping right here because I really want to ask you this question about your future again. Uh, last week I took 10 successful entrepreneurs up to Johns Hopkins Hospital. I don't think I told you about this. And I wanted to meet with the Center on Aging's leader. They have a really uh, highly regarded geriatric and aging center and she sat with us privately for like two hours it was wonderful and she said that she when she has families come in and it's not just the patient not just the elderly person but she wants to know what's most important like at that stage whether the person's 70 or 80 or 68 or 88 like what does success in the future look like for you she asks her clients at this top center. And I thought it was a great way of looking at it. It's not just like fixing their shoulder problem, but what is happiness? What does meaning look like for you? So I would ask you, Dirk, as if you were in the room with us, like what is, what is the future happiness, the future meaningfulness look like for you at this stage, given all that you've done, but maybe all that you still want to do? And thanks for being so patient with well, that long-winded question. No, want to be fully engaged with my mission, which is to live a principled life full of accomplishment, mm -hmm. full of passion, check, and service check. to family, community, country, and God. And if I can do that by staying in relatively good health, so I can continue to be active and involved in all these different organizations and networks mm -hmm. and friends that I have. Mm -hmm. That's my life purpose at this point. And I could tell that you weren't just making up that mission. That, that's, that's your known personal mission, isn't it? It is. And that could then play out in terms of, well, I have this new idea, or I bet you get approached by other people with their new ideas. Well, does it fit into my mission or not? Like, how do you decide what to jump into and what not to jump into at this stage, because you must get peppered with so many opportunities. I do, and, and one thing that I had to learn in life was my ability to say no and be focused is always a challenge to me. Mm -hmm. I'm always excited for new things, but even with writing this book, uh, the only way that I think I can commit to completing that is to have hired a ghostwriter 
that can give me the structure that allows me to tell my stories and then go through a process. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you've ever heard this story, Adam, but I've talked to other people who've written their first book, and they said, just, just write a crappy draft. And if you write a crappy draft, you're going to get into the flow. Mm. You can edit later. But just get it out there. So that's what I'm doing right now. Oh, okay. And then this ghostwriter will help clean it up or make it better, presumably, a in some way. Absolutely. And then I'm the editor of the Abs title, so I'll be involved at that point. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad that you didn't say no. I'm glad you have a problem with saying no, self-serving, because you said yes <laughs> to coming on the podcast. Um, but you were so generous to come down here. You don't live locally. Did you fly a helicopter? Did you drive a car? Did you no, come on a plane? I actually drove a car. On today. a road. Okay. Yes. It's not self-driving? Is it an old-fashioned uh, No, it car? has self-driving capability. Of course it does. <laughs> um, but I, I'm joking a little bit because you're always so innovative with things. How, how do you decide like what to read even in this age where there's so much content out there? Like I, I like asking accomplished, learned people how do you consume content? Are there certain subscriptions you can't do without or conferences you like to attend? Or how do you, how do you keep learning? Well, I, I will say that uh, I'm a verbal and experiential learner. I'm not so good at sitting down and reading a book. Okay. But I love podcasts. Yes. And I love the fact that my field of origin, my profession, was investments because it was always a combination of science and art mm. that led to a fully formed yeah. multidisciplinary right. approach. So I've I've got the digital. Uh, Wall Street Journal. Yeah, I, I can't live without that. Good example. I still get the print edition. I'm old fashioned, but same same publication. Yeah. yeah. So in it, you said you love podcasts. So what's your second favorite? Po we know what your favorite podcast is, but what's your, what are, what are some other ones you like? Well, or topics. I love. Uh, well, I actually like YouTube yeah. as well. Yeah. Because when I'm going to take on a new activity. For me to go and find a YouTube on that. You can find anything. It's it's fantastic. It is. Yeah. We recently, uh, somebody gave us a fig plant, a fig tree as a gift. And we learned how to, like, plant it and take it halfway out in the wintertime where we live. And it's all through YouTube. Yeah. Who would have ever thought? I wouldn't buy a book on how to plant a fig tree, probably. Well... Certainly, uh, you and I have talked about this before, before but the Family Firm Institute mm -hmm. is a non-for-profit professional organization of all the service providers for family businesses and families of wealth. Mm -hmm. And their website and now their featuring of, you know, the pioneers and their podcast series is so strong oh i'll check that out and maybe even we'll put that on our next newsletter maybe right. a link to that if you think that's a good uh resource you've also told me um maybe just one more question about the value of networks i think networking has a bad connotation to it but i'm a networker and i 
all I do is relationships. So how has networking and associations been important to you? Probably the most important early on network that was provided for when I came to work for the family business in the investment area. My uncles had heard about a new program at the Wharton School. University of and Pennsylvania. This was, okay. this was the f one of the first family forums of its type associated with a major university. Mm -hmm. And it was there I learned some very important things. Did you learn from other U's or from like professors? Like was it more peer-to-peer? -peer? Uh, I was one of the three first family firms. Okay. So the You were the case study. Yeah. So, but they and their faculty was they were pioneering this concept for a family council. Okay, family council. So if you have a family business and when they get to a certain size, they benefit from formalizing their governance with a board mm -hmm. and hopefully a number of independent non-family on their board. Yeah, advisors, accountability. But if you think of it, the two circles, the Venn diagram of the family and its business, where they come together, if this side over here, the business, has a governance structure called the board, the family council for the family circle is its equivalent. Yeah, because the agendas are slightly different yeah. in those two blocks. And one of the things that I learned was uh, when independent directors would come to Pitcairn, I gave them a yellow card. You know what a yellow card is in soccer? In soccer? Yeah. yeah. That's a penalty, I've had, I've had right? a few. Yeah. A little caution. So they all in their folios were given a yellow card. I didn't know this. <laughs> and if the topics at the board was drifting over into family and emotional issues, they would hold up a yellow card and say, that's really should be directed to the mm. family council. Mm. Once the family council has delivered with that, d deliberated on that, and come back with a recommendation that has board action required, then we will listen. Mm. So it was, it was a fun way that is of a making way. the point. I'm sure you love showing the yellow, uh, the yeah. yellow card. Well, any I couldn't do it. Any, the, any red cards? Uh, no, they get kicked uh, out. That That'd that be getting that was called the woodshed. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dirk, we didn't even get to the fact that you made a movie that yeah. I think was critically acclaimed. There's yeah. many other topics, so we might have to have you come back sometime if you're open to that. I'd be glad to. It, I, is the time over? I told you it goes so fast, <laughs> but you've always been so encouraging of me. So I want to thank you for that encouragement in addition it, to being on today. And I would say that to the listeners, I have been a steady reviewer of the Up To You Are podcast, and I always find that they have something of takeaway for me. So Thank you. thanks for doing this series, and keep it going, brother. Thanks, Dirk. I, I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Up To Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe via your podcast platform of choice. You can also email Adam directly at adam at uptofoundation.org. And you can receive our newsletter, suggest speakers, and give your candid feedback. We'd love to hear from you. 
The Up To Podcast is produced by the BL Media Group right outside of the nation's capital in Northern Virginia. We'll see you next time.